0: Goal is the easiest, most effective, hands-off way to bring teams together. Thinking back at G2, we actually SEO was outside of marketing. It's now in product. It was first outside of product in marketing. And the way that we worked with our engineering teams and our PMs was by getting the same goal.
1: We all strive for more nowadays. More traffic, more revenue, more growth. In this never-ending battle for more, it's easy to forget what's important. So what is important? Building real relationships with real humans and trying to be better each day without caring quite so much about getting more. After all, by building real and meaningful relationships, you'll have way more than you ever need. The SaaS SEO Show is a platform for meaningful connections and honest conversations with people who are real, hardworking practitioners and high performers in the SaaS industry. We're here to learn and get inspired by them, and we hope you do too. Now, here's your host, George Cassiotis.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SaaS SEO Show. I'm your host, George Cassiotis, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Kevin Indig, who leads SEO as the director uh, at Shopify. He's also the creator of the Growth Memo newsletter and the TechBound podcast. Before Shopify, Kevin ran SEO and Con at G2 and Atlassian and helped companies like eBay, Eventbrite, Samsung, Pinterest, and many others grow. Kevin, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.
2: So before we get started and I have many, 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 questions that I want to, to ask you. Really, I was waiting for this for, for a long time. Uh, I would like to um, uh, it would be nice to give us a, a bit, you know, uh, tell us a, f- a few things about your background. Uh, how did you end up doing uh, what you do uh, today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to start in reverse chronological order to basically lead up to where I am today. Uh, and it all started over ten years ago. Um, where i had my my first job as a trainee in germany where i was born and raised in an agency and that really kickstarted my career really catapulted everything forward because i got i learned so much on the job and even before then you know i was an avid computer gamer as a teenager uh, and got soaked into this hole that was the internet Um, and that was enabled because uh germany adopted broadband internet in the very early 2000s late 90s uh, and it opened a whole new world, right? And I got really soaked into this. And it was at a time when SEO either was completely unknown, right? People had no idea what you meant when you said SEO, or it had a really dark stigma. It was very hacky, very uh hatty And so that's kind of the time when I decided to to go into SEO um, to the demise of my parents. <laughs> they were not, they're not sure what I was doing there, but they, you know, luckily they trusted me. And then it turned into this uh, into this big thing. And so I kind of grew up a little bit with the industry, I would say. Um, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for about 10 years. I had my first five years on the agency side. I really learned uh, a lot by getting exposure to different companies. And then I switched to the in-house side. I did uh, SEO at Atlassian, at Daily Dailymotion, um, at a company called G2 uh, before Shopify. And then now I'm the director of SEO at Shopify. And so my, my core skills and focus are really in, in what I call organic growth now, right? And scalable SEO predominantly for either marketplaces or SaaS or e-commerce companies.
2: Okay, that's great. Thank you very much for sharing this. Now, I know that you are the director of SEO at Shopify, but I would like to take a step back and uh, get to the time where you were leading the um, owned SEO efforts as a VP at um, G2. And I'm, you know, I'm watching you since then, and I've been following you since then. And I remember that back then you managed to scale the team very quickly. Uh, I don't know exactly, you know, the numbers, but you you hired a lot of people in such a short time frame. And I have two things that I'd like to, to know here. First of all, were, was there a, a particular focus uh, that you know ha- has been the main drive of your decisions, and at the same time uh, it would be also very interesting to know what were the key learnings from from this experience, uh, scaling a, a con an SEO team so quickly.
0: You know, what what many people don't know is that when I started at G2, there was already a very large content team that I inherited. And after a while, we had to make some really hard decisions and actually let half of the team go. And then I rehired half of the team back. So it was kind of a process of, you know, completely rebuilding the content engine at G2. And to understand content at G2, you have to understand the business model and the growth levers of G2. Without going into too much detail, there's a core growth loop that is based on reviews, right? You write a review on G2, it adds more to category and product pages or adds more content to category and product pages. They rank higher for certain keywords, which then bring in more people. Who, some of them might uh, leave a review again. And that's kind of how this growth loop spins uh, upward. And that worked really well and still still works really, really well. But we wanted to accelerate growth at G2 by adding a company-created content loop on top of that. Basically hiring our own full-time writers. Uh, we had a bit over 30. And um, creating content on the Learning Hub on a, uh, a separate part of the site. Um, that where we basically wrote all sorts of guides, statistics, articles, tutorials um, that related to the key categories that G2 had software reviews in. I mean, G2 had software reviews of over a thousand categories, but we decided to go after a couple of the, the biggest rocks. And so when we rebuilt the content engine from scratch, we had a higher emphasis on content writers, but we had a brilliant content editor. And I think today there are even two editors at G2 because editing is so important when it comes to content. It's it's really a a bottleneck by design that is basically a a kind of gateway for quality of the content. Right? So a, an editor is a single point of content or a single sorry, a single point of contact where all the content runs through and they make sure that the that the quality in the bar is really high that it hits the right tone and it kind of speaks to the right audience and so key learnings were you know like how to how to structure that team in a most efficient way and that had a lot to do with setting the right goals so we basically established writers for categories so and a writer would own a couple of categories and they would become experts in that category because and we're going to talk about this probably later a bit more but um the the problem with quote unquote marketing writers is that they, you need to develop some sort of expertise, and you need to to develop some sort of reputation in that space. Not to say that you know you have to publish research papers, but you have to you have to be. It's not enough to just do like ten minutes of research and then write an article. That kind of content doesn't survive anymore. And so all these kind of lessons surface out of the time at G two, which was really really valuable and and, and great for me.
2: OK, that's interesting. One thing that I, I, I don't know if this was your decision, but it, it always, you always know, I, I had this question in my in my mind about uh, the Learning Hub. I think today's nowadays they, they call it Learn Hub or something like that. But I was very curious why they decided to uh, have it in a in a subdomain. <laughs> uh, this was uh, not in a, in a folder. You know, uh, this was very uh, weird to me, um, but I don't know. Maybe this was before you, you joined the company
0: it was it was really just a technical hurdle um, from uh we used hubspots to publish that content and it was technically very difficult um i would say without giving away too much like like said, a reminder in a year to look at the learn hub again it will probably look very different um but yeah it was it was not by design that we had it on a on a subdomain uh, i would have much more preferred it on a subdirectory but there's there's more to that long-term content strategy, and you know that's that's a w- another key lesson that we that we pulled away. Uh, we there was a point of time at which we published a thousand pieces of content within six months, and we looked back at the results and we were like, "There's nothing coming. Like, don't rank well. There's not a lot of good traffic coming through. Like, we have to we have to change our our mindset here." And so we pivoted from publishing a huge Mass of content to publishing maybe fifty long form pieces a month. Ta- okay, maybe a month is probably. I would say half a year in six months, right? Like very low publishing frequency, but very high um, quality and depth of content, and that changed everything. That was that was a real game changer. It made it much easier to um, to to rank high, to build links, to get high quality traffic, and so. Uh, that was another one of these pivotal moments where we look back and we're like, wow, um, we really learned something here. And um, that's going to pay off long term for G2. It's, it's a real investment and competitive advantage.
2: OK, that makes sense. Thank you very much for saying that. Speaking yeah. of building teams, I remember that a while back you you mentioned the fact that uh, Asunite is one of the most multidimensional operations, at least if you want to do it you know, in the, in the right way. And it requires uh, cross functional teams, uh, especially if we're talking about an enterprise company, uh, to work effectively together. And I would like to ask in that context, as a person who leads such teams, how do you maintain alignment uh, between the different teams? And at the same time, how do you have them work under the same goals and objectives? I love that
0: question because. SEOs love to over obsess over tactics, right? And, and, and that is fine. But those kind of questions, getting those right, has such a profound impact on how you execute an SEO, right? A lot of people think about what to do in SEO, but not how to do it. And the how is almost more important than the what. Right? I can teach somebody SEO basics probably within a week, and they, they will be. 80% efficient, right? The last 20%, that's, what, that's where like, you need years and years and maybe a decade to, to get really good at. But the how is so much more important than the what. And so these kind of questions, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. And so here's where I am with alignments. Number one is the goal. Goal is the easiest, most effective hands-off way to bring teams together. Thinking back at G2, We actually, SEO was outside of marketing, it's now in product. It was first outside of product in marketing. And the way that we worked with our engineering teams and our PMs was by getting the same goal. That was hugely effective and you have to be very smart about that goal. It's not enough to just say, OK, organic traffic because organic traffic is just a means to an end. And that end, at the end of the day is to make the company revenue or to bring in new customers and delight these customers and do it in a sustainable way. But it's not just all about the traffic, right? If I could choose between whatever, like a million clicks a month and you know, five thousand customers—it's a very easy choice. And of course, I didn't put these numbers to context, but you get what I'm saying here, right? Uh, and so, pick a smart goal, pick a smart north star that aligns and incentivizes the people, right? This is, a, this is another second-order effect of picking a good goal—is that people's careers are being judged by hitting hitting that goal, right? So, if you make it too shallow, if it's too irrelevant, then it's it's very difficult to reward someone for achieving something that doesn't matter really to them. So. Goal is a huge alignment, and then touch points and rituals. We don't talk often enough about what rituals in-house teams, whether it's SEO or growth, should really follow and what makes them effective. Um, because a common fallacy is to just kill every problem with a meeting, right? Like, oh, there's something going wrong. I just meet on a, on a weekly basis and figure it out. Uh, it can work, but it comes at a high cost. But you have to be intentional about the rituals. And so when you when you align teams that are not in the same Uh, organization or you try to align them, you can start with the goal. And second, you need to create a touch point where they can talk and communicate and hold each other accountable. And the third thing is to define a agreed upon roadmap. So when these teams come together and decide what to do, right, when 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 they make a plan, first of all, that plan has to make sense and work out. But second of all, you need to invite all the shareholders. And make sure that everybody agrees on them, right? Like, oftentimes, what happens, and I learned this hard way, is that when cross cross cross-functional teams come together, and even if they make a plan, right, they just run with it. They forget this really important step, which is to check in with all the stakeholders. Do we have the green light? Can we go with this? Are you on board? And uh, the 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 ugly way that this can turn out is that a couple months in, you know, it's like somebody checks in and knocks on the door, and it's like, "What are you guys doing?" And they're like, "Hey, we have this awesome plan. We're doing this and that." And, and That person's like, what the hell? Like, I had no idea this was going on. So creating alignment means getting everybody on the same page and doing something that everybody agrees upon and that makes sense for everybody. Now, if you have some like it's not uncommon for somebody to maybe not agree on. And then there are several ways to go about that. One way is disagree and commit where basically, you know, you, you bring them to the same table and you say, hey, we have a really high confidence and belief that this is going to work out we need you to be on board even if you disagree let's take a bet right like let's let's say in six months we check back in we see how it goes and if if, if we're not if we don't get the results then you know we we admit that we're wrong and we're not going to do it again but if we check back in and we're seeing good results then maybe we can convince you so it's, it's, it's all these kind of meta things all these kind of ways to communicate to negotiate to make deals that are important when it comes to stakeholder management in the context of a roadmap. I'm going to stop there because there's a lot of depth, as you can see. But these are the three things that
2: really help align teams cross
0: functionally
2: Okay, that makes sense. Uh, That's really insightful. Speaking of goals now, um, I would like to to start with something that you wrote a while back, uh, a post on SEO strategy. And you mentioned that uh, an integral part of uh, an SEO strategy uh, should be uh, to be able, uh, I guess, that, you know, on the behalf of the person who creates the strategy, to be able to demonstrate some kind of impact. And we are an agency, and we know that in many cases, it's very difficult to be able to demonstrate impact from specific SEO activities, especially if we're talking about a new website that has no data to learn from. and I would be very interested to know what is your approach uh, when it comes to impact assignment uh, and tying uh, you know impact to specific uh, seo activities for example you know changing the tile tags to this uh, 20 landing pages will result in x
0: yeah you know this is a mistake that i made like many times, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's so crucial for several reasons. Um, the biggest one being buy-in, right? If you want, if, oftentimes SEO needs resources to get something done, right? Sometimes, sure, you can go into a CMS, you can change 20 meta titles yourself and drive some impact. But that's not, that's not how SEO scales over time. The, the, the key to scale oftentimes is engineering design, PM and data science resources, or, or at least some you know, some, some group of, of people who help you implement what you recommend. Because SEO is, a, is a basically a set of recommendations. Now, when it comes to impact, um, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, coming back to what I said before, you have to pick the right KPI or North Star um, or metric to go after. And that is tricky because it depends on the business you work for or work with. So again, organic traffic, very shallow kind of KPI. That's not going to convince an executive to invest in SEO. If you tell them, hey, we got a thousand clicks. Great. What does it mean for the business? That's a typical comeback, right? Uh, revenue from SEO is possible sometimes, but can be very difficult to measure. It's easy to measure in e-commerce, right? I, 50 people came from, from, from organic search. They bought ten products with the order. Value of X, that means you know, this is the the kind of revenue from SEO. Very straightforward. That's one of the reasons why e-commerce has such a high degree of SEO, right? It's easy to measure, it's easy to connect. On the enterprise side, super difficult, super hard. The more high-touch sales you have in your business, the more difficult it is to attribute it back to SEO because there's so many steps that are not in control of SEO that contribute to that. Publishers and marketplaces, varies. For publishers, if they run on, on subscriptions or ads, it's usually straightforward to connect to SEO. It's not too difficult. Uh, affiliate businesses, uh, I would say the same. For marketplaces, it really depends on the unit economics and how the marketplace works. So it gets, it gets tricky in there, but usually marketplaces are very SEO friendly as well. But what you should take away from, from me rambling about this for a hot minute here is that you know you have to tie the impact and the number you measure to measure impact to the business model and to how the business makes money. Super important to get buy-in to get some stuff done. Now, the the other question is, how can you show impact quickly? Because as you mentioned correctly, a lot of SEO investments take time. They're, they take a lot of resource investment to, to execute and implement. And that is a tricky situation to be in. It's a tough spot. So what you, the way you, th- you should think about this is what is the smallest experiment you can launch to demonstrate impact, right? So when you say, hey, changing title tags, what to change, I don't know, 50,000 title tags and, and add something to it the year or whatever. Can you start with five? And can you prove the concept with maybe five title tags? It's easier for something that has a bigger impact, right? Every experiment shows strong results when you, when you test a very significant factor, right? Uh, hero image, for example, coming back to user testing, venturing out of SEO for just a second, hero image, if that makes a, has a big impression, that will show results very quickly because it has a big impact on the user behavior. But the small, like the, the shade of a, of a button color will take a long time to measure because it's so, uh, it has such little significance in the user behavior. So uh, the same applies to SEO where if you, have a, if you test a very impactful signal like the title, you get results quickly, but sometimes something like, say, uh, uh, length of the, the uh, content on the page or the internal linking or something like schema or XML sitemaps or HTML sitemaps. It's a long time to measure and it's really, really difficult. And that's where you have to, to set up very smart experiments. But it keeps coming back to the question, how can you demonstrate impact in maybe a week instead of six months? Get the buy in and then roll it out across the scale.
2: I think that this is a very important point because, you know, in many cases, as let's say SEO professionals, you are able to see the limits of what's possible and what you have to do in order for the website, for example, to be uh, in a better position, uh, have, a, have a better health, let's say, quote unquote. But if you communicate that all at once to you know, the client or the company that you're working at, chances are that you know, they are not going to buy it because guess what? SEO is not a priority for the next six months because we are working on this project. Obviously, this applies to companies that are not uh, SEO is not in their DNA. Uh, but still, I think that what you, what you, the point that you made makes sense, like do something small and so impact and then you can get the buy-in buying to, to do something bigger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The thing is you cannot you cannot argue with money in a company. If somebody brings you money, that is you cannot say no to that, right? I'm not talking about the shady kind of you know uh way to, to make money, but if somebody comes with an opportunity, every entrepreneur will say yes to that, unless there are really big, important strategic reasons. But telling someone, hey, like we have a huge opportunity here, like this is where we can, you know at 10% revenue year over year or something like that, that opens a lot of doors and a lot of ears and a lot of eyes. Um, And framing that, telling that story, setting that up in an exciting way, that is a master skill. If you get that down, business is easy, right? Like agency consulting is easy. Getting stuff done in-house and having a career is easy. But bringing things back to impact storytelling, getting people excited, extrapolating the big opportunity—that's a—that's a skill that if you master, you're you're good.
2: Okay. Okay. It makes sense. I would like to shift gears a bit and uh, discuss something really interesting. Uh, a few days ago, you wrote an essay on Index Now and the future of web web crawling. I would like to know first, in your opinion, obviously, and based on your experiences, what is the problem with crawling nowadays? And how initiatives like the Index Now may help websites index faster and better. When we look at the the search engine ranking process, there are
0: four fundamental steps: there's crawling, rendering, indexing, and ranking. And each of those steps have become really complicated and very computation-heavy. Now the Crawling is especially challenging for search engines because the web grows really fast. Number one. Number two, it has a it's very resource intensive, right? To have like tons of, I mean, God knows how many crawlers out there that constantly crawl the web, that constantly go back, find new links, and put them in a database, and then you know, send schedulers out, crawl them again. Super resource heavy. Number three, there's a lot of spam on the web, right? a lot of irrelevant content that you don't want to waste your resources on. And that spam is growing and growing and getting more and more. And number four, there are, the use of nofollow links is increasing and has been increasing over the last one and a half decades um, with an aggressive pace. And nofollow by def- by definition means that search engines should not follow those links. Now. Google recently changed the way they go about nofollow, probably for exactly those reasons. But the takeaway here is that crawling is, is, is challenging. Crawling is also a very outdated idea. right? That's, it's basically what made Google big and successful. Right? When we think about PageRank, uh, the basic idea there is web crawling, and then kind of stringing, stringing the web together and, and, and ranking it or sorting it or ordering it. And now it's time for something new for something that makes a lot more sense, which is that instead of search engines going out to the websites and getting information, pulling information in, they're going to put the responsibility on the webmasters to push information into the system. Right? For a long time already, so I actually think this is pretty late, we have the situation that webmasters and businesses and people want to be present on search engines. Search engines don't have to convince businesses that they should invest in being present, right? It's it's the reversal effect. There's a soaking, a polling effect. And search engines will and are leveraging that to ask webmasters to submit content to them. Actually, in fact, the now is almost a step back. Um, a while ago, or actually years ago, Google played around with an indexing API and um, tested what happens if Webmasters plug into that API and push new content, push the HTML, the rendered HTML straight to Google. That for some reason fell asleep. I'm not exactly sure why. And then um, about one or two years ago, Bing picked that back up and provided an indexing API uh, that works pretty well. And now, on top of that, they released Index Now, which is not an indexing API. It is more an, H- an XML sitemap on steroids. And what these search engines do is they reach out to large platforms like wordpress or like shopify that that carry a lot of sites and uh see if they can plug into that database to to be able to crawl and index a large amount of sites at the same time and so my my assumption my theory here is that this will increase over time and search engines will push more webmasters and site owners to use these APIs to ping content Two search engines in the beginning is index now where it basically calls the crawler over in a much more efficient manner than the XML sitemap. But in the future, I expect webmasters to to push the the full rendered HTML to the search engines. And it comes, both of these come with a couple of benefits. First of all, avoiding spam gets much, much easier. Because if you have to crawl it first to then evaluate it, that is very inefficient. But if basically a source pings you spam it's very easy to say, okay, that source we're shutting that down, we're not going to accept new content from them. So you're putting yourself in a much more efficient position because the API becomes a bottleneck. And if you have a bottleneck, you can control it more easier. Uh, you can c- control it easier. Um, and then second, um, it's, it's also more efficient because if you get the rendered HTML, you don't have to render it yourself anymore as a search engine. That is a huge effort, uh, a huge benefit, I mean. Uh, and then third, it's still possible to Evaluate the backlinks, evaluate the content, the images, and everything else on that page. Even if it gets pink, if it get, if it's if it gets pink to you, you don't have to do it. Uh, you know, you don't have to go through the, through the full process, but you still get the benefit from uh, from parsing that HTML. So that's where I that's where I see kind of this whole trend going. Again, Index Now is a very uh, early step that basically basically replaces XML sitemaps. Bing says in the documentation that it's not a replacement, but in essence, it's it's a, it's a much more efficient way uh, to do that. and also gives them much more data because going out to a site and, and fetching their XML sitemap is not the same as when you have an open API and, and, and sites just push new content or ping you when new content is available. So I see index now as a very early beginning of the indexing API, which is where all this is going to go ultimately.
2: Okay, uh, a question that I have here based on, based on something that you mentioned. Why do you think uh, is the, the fact that, you know, we have an increase in no follows uh, in, in general, I mean, on the Internet? It's
0: because backlink building and link buying has become such a big industry. It's a shadow industry, right? It's something that is technically not allowed, like maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should not compare it to to something illegal. Uh, maybe I I'll leave it there. But uh, it's a shadow industry, but it's a very powerful industry. Backlinks still matter greatly, and Google has been very smart about creating a narrative that backlinks don't matter and you should don't worry, you should not worry about it. But reality is there is trade going on and and link buying, and it's most of the time it's it's pretty effective and it works. Uh, as a result of that, a lot of Key decision makers
2: like journalists or content writers. So another topic that I would like to, uh, to touch on is the fact that nowadays, especially with the rise of uh, this new category of content optimization tools, uh, we see content that ranks in the top of the search results, uh, but in many cases is very, very similar. Okay, and I would like to hear your thoughts on that. First, whether or not do you think that you think that this is Uh, copycat content, as many people uh, call it, is an actual issue. And if it's an actual issue, what can brands uh, do about this issue? It's a
0: fantastic question because there are several things going on here at the same time. On the one hand, search is designed to rank results, which automatically means that a lot of companies and people want to show up at the top for only 10 results, technically. right? Uh, and of those ten, only three really have impact. So there's a there's a huge competition for a very large uh, small space, basically scarcity. At the same time, the tools have come have become good enough to give great recommendations to writers. And the way that they get to these recommendations is they look at the top results and they say basically, hey, what are these results doing really well? What are they covering in terms of topics? And then give you recommendations to do the same. So there's a lot of copying of the top results going on. And it still works, but that's part of the problem, right? Uh, and then there's another trend that's that's, been, that's kind of uh, coming on top of that that's going to complicate our world even more. Uh, and that is the, the, the rise of, of AI and machine-generated content. The, machi- the ML tools for content have become really good really, really good, and not just in terms of giving recommendations, but sometimes even in writing the content themselves. And the way this is going to play out very soon is that machines are going to write content that doesn't really need a writer, say product descriptions, because all you do is really describing the, the, the product, you don't need a person for that. And on the other hand, it's going to be um Credibility and trustworthiness is going to be become so much more important, and already is important today. But the question that we, you know, and this is started 2016. I wrote a lengthy article about the the problem of trust and fake news, and how that funnels into everything that we do in marketing, and even feeds the rise of crypto and blockchain and all these new technologies. So it's it's, it's fundamental. It's profound, and in content. Credibility and trustworthiness is going to become even more important when machines can write the content. right? And so uh, you'll probably want a doctor to write content and, and not have a machine summarize what it finds on the internet about that. Uh, and that's going, to become, that's going to become really important. And I do expect that blockchain also adds a quality credibility factor to content. So it's going to be really interesting how that plays out. Now, what does it mean for brands? It means a couple of things. First of all, we don't yet know how or what the impact is of machine-generated content. Technically, if a machine does a good job at creating content, it's still valuable. But Google will have to find out different ways to then sort through this huge sea of content. So it's going to be very interesting to observe how that goes. I think every company that really grows on content should start look, looking into ml tools and tools that, that use machine learning to to at least help inform the content and then on the other hand brands should really think about how to surface content from absolute experts in this space it can be something like an influencer but you know the, the idea of influencer is a bit kind of narrow because we we so often think about the Instagram model that that just tries to sell a a detox tea. Uh, That's not what I mean by influencer, right? It's much more about experts and authorities in the space. And the the challenge you have to solve as a brand is how do you get them to publish content on your side? Because that's what what really will have a long-term and lasting impact and also be competitive advantage because experts are also scarce. So the brands who understand that the best and can build an engine around that today will succeed in the future.
2: I think that it's one of these things that you may have to uh, find a balance, like you may have to ways where uh, AI generated content, uh, for example, uh, can you know work in your favor, for example, to do. Um, I, I don't expect that we will have long form uh, AI generated content uh, that may be in the position to rank, but I'm not sure whether or not it will be. Um, Actual, for example, and it will be able to replicate, uh, quote, unquote, what a human being uh, could, you know, could do. Uh, so I, I expect this to be something that, as you, as you put it already, uh, could be uh, leveraged to do very specific jobs. And those jobs could vary based on the industry, based on the type of business, and so on.
0: And that's good because no writer really wants to write a thousand product descriptions, right? It's not the most exciting job. Writers should, you know, create exciting novel content that is that is uh, that pulls the readers in, you know, that makes a point. So there's still a lot of space for writers. And I do think that writers will be important in the future. But I do think that this idea of a universal writer is coming to an end. And that, what I mean by that is a universal writer is a... Person that can write about anything and everything, and if you if you do everything, you do nothing. So I do see more room for specialization in the future for writers, for them to develop more expertise. And that is to come full circle. A reason for why we, when we decided, when we defined the content strategy at G two, is one of the reasons for why we had writers own specific software categories and push them to develop expertise and 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 uh, wisdom in these categories, so that they can surface that back in the content, and I really believe that this is, for writers, a, a, a good investment in their careers, is specialization and, 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 expe- uh, and, and developing that expertise, uh, but also for companies and keeping those writers at the company for a long time, keeping their name attached to the company or you know have that brand in-house. Uh, I, I really do think that. And so it's very interesting when you look over the last two decades, over the last 20 years, Um, how a lot of writers were journalists back in the day and then journalism kind of faced a lot of hardship in 2008 when the whole publishing industry collapsed. And now writers gain a lot of importance again, but on the in-house side, on the side of the brands, the companies, and you see some companies doing something, some really interesting things there. Look at venture capital, for example venture capital companies are now developing full media arms, like A16C. right? They have a full network of podcasts and they have the future, which is a very uh, exciting uh, publishing platform. Uh, And then other um, venture capitalists are using content as well. Very, very uh, methodological, very, very systematic. And so uh, content and media arms is very exciting in the future and it will transform, but I think it will persist and, and still be here in 20 years.
2: Okay, that's very great. Uh, Kevin, before we go, I have one last question. There are obviously people in SaaS who are listening to this uh, episode. And if you had to give one advice when it comes to content SEO, specifically for B2B SaaS companies, uh, what would that be? Get the balance right between
0: creating content for the business, like making sure you have a very tight connection to business impact, And on the other hand, developing something new and novel that stands out. It's really about keeping in mind that these days, everybody and anybody can create content, whether it's podcasts or written content, whatever, YouTube videos. And the, the question is, how can you stand out? How can you do something novel, something that's remarkable and memorable? But at the same time, don't get too far away from business impact. And it's that balance that you really want to want to get right. And, uh, and I think that will help you be successful in the long term.
2: Okay, you heard it, people. Kevin, where can people find more about you?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you can learn more on my website, dot indigcom or um, just Google growth memo comes out every week's free newsletter where basically uh, share what I learned and my thoughts about the intersection of SEO and growth.
2: Okay, that's great. Thank you very much for being on the show, Kevin.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Another episode of the SaaS SEO show has wrapped. We hope this episode has taught you something new too. We'd like you to connect with us so you can keep up with all the new content that we're creating. Before you go, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to this podcast and over at our YouTube channel, where we upload the video version of this and every episode. Until next time!